Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by World Central Kitchen, one of my favorite charities. We are facing an unprecedented emergency right now, unlike anything our country has ever experienced. Our economy is ground to a halt. Schools and businesses are closed. Travels restricted. Restaurants face an uncertain future. Traditional safety nets like school feeding programs, childcare services, and senior centers struggling to stay open. Uh, millions of Americans out of work now struggling to put food on the table for their family. Um, we also have people on the front lines all over the place, people that work for hospitals, ER, ICU, all of them putting their lives in danger to protect us, to help us, to try to save lives. Those people, guess what? They need to eat and they're, they're working crazy hours right now. World Central Kitchen is delivering fresh meals all over the place, tens of thousands of meals daily. You can donate there. Just go to um, their website, wck.org, and you can help in a whole bunch of different ways. They're also um, helping people on the front line. One of the things they're doing, the Feed the Frontline in Los Angeles, which you can find on their uh, on their front page. Um, I donated 100,000 to it. Anthony Davis donated 250. A bunch of people have donated to this actually. And you can donate too. Go check that out. It's helping out uh, at least 450 people working in hospitals, ICU and ER units and six hospitals in the Los Angeles area. There's a bunch of places like that though. Go check out that website. It's really important, not just because it's getting meals to the right people, but it's also keeping some local restaurants that are all in peril right now. Um, at least working and making food and trying to stay alive. I hope everybody's staying safe out there. Um, this is glad we're in April, but glad that March is done. April seems like it's going to be even scarier than March was. We'll see how it plays out. Uh, glad we're able to do some content for you. If you if you checked out theringer.com, you'll know we're still writing pieces there. If you check out the Ringer Podcast Network, we are still cranking out stuff, including the rewatchables where we did, uh, we just did Tommy boy, Shay Serrano and I did fast and furious seven a little bit earlier and the book of basketball podcast, our little redraftables idea that, uh, started with the 96 draft on this podcast. We've done 97, 98. We're doing 99 later this week, probably going through until about 2003. Then I'm not sure after that, you can check out all of those on the book of basketball podcast because we started a little emergency season two. Coming up, we're going to talk to Joe Buck, who has a new podcast launching and is a sports announcer with no sports to announce. And uh, our friend Alan Yang, who has a new movie coming out called Tiger Tail. We're going to talk to him about that, but a whole bunch of other stuff too. This is a good podcast. First, our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, Joe Buck is here, one of our most famous sports announcers. There's no sports to announce. What's your life like? Well, I've tried to be creative. Uh, I've tried to uh, beg for Twitter interactions that allow me to call play-by-play -play of people's daily lives, which have been fun to do. Uh, it's added a little bit of a charitable element to things, but it's it's weird. This is the time of year where I would typically be off anyway, so... 
I'm kind of used to that. I just miss sports as a fan right now. Just being able to plop down on the couch and flip a game on and not having that is, you know, like I, I would imagine for most Americans, uh, it, it's left a huge void in in my daily life, which I don't think I realized, even being in sports, how much I rely on sports to make me happy. Yeah, you kind of conceded this part of the sports calendar to Jim Nance. I mean, I mean the real the real loser from sports announcers. Jim Nance loses his March Madness, then right into the Masters. That was like the Nance wheelhouse. Yeah, well, you don't know this, and and I'm I'm willing to reveal this on your podcast. Um, there's like an underground society of play by play guys, and we we meet once a year, and we determine what parts of the calendar we're going to dominate. And Nance. Uh, Way back when, when we first got together, uh, like Dead Poets Society said, I want, I want March, March Madness. I want April, the Masters. And we we're like, hey, Michaels and I looked at each other. We're like, let's, let's let him have it. And, and now, you know, we got nothing and he's got nothing. And uh, we're no longer meeting or speaking to one another. So it's good. So you had, you basically told everybody, October, it's me time. October is mine. Yeah. You stay out of October. You guys can have whatever else, but October is mine. Literally, you can have every other month. Guys, there are 12 of them. There's only one that I want. And I want to be <laughs> bouncing all over the world. I want to be calling two different sports. And I want to be fighting with my wife and my kids while I do it. And uh, October is my month. And that's the one I got. So, uh, you know, we'll see once we get there, what the hell's going on in the world. So it's you and Michaels and Nance are kind of the most established, biggest play-by-play voices we have for professional sports. And I'm sure there's some some real camaraderie with everybody. And maybe if it's if it's just two of you, maybe you complain about the other guy a tiny bit. But when it's the three of you, everybody gets along. It's like one of those deals. You're like, girl, girls in a sorority house. It is. It's like the Richard Lewis. I forget what the name of the movie was, but a bunch of comedians sitting around a dinner table or having drinks. And they were all so scared to get up, to go to the bathroom for fear of what was going to be said about them when they got up and left. So yeah, you're right. Actually, I don't know those guys that well. I played golf with Michaels a couple times in that Tahoe event and I've been around him uh, and he couldn't be nicer. Uh, and obviously he was more, he was as, as, much a contemporary of my dad's as, as he is mine. That's how long he's been doing it. And then Nance, we just never have really crossed paths that much. So when he did that shout out at the end of the AFC championship game, previewing the Super Bowl and mentioning my dad, and it was just such a, such a cool thing for him to do. And honestly, that was the first time that I was aware that my dad called that Super Bowl between uh, the Chiefs and the Vikings, and it was the only one he did on TV. Nance knew more about my dad, is what I'm saying, than I knew about my dad. So basically what you're saying is you were on Nance's corner and and he was pretty cold to you over the years, but now he's starting to warm up. That's how I interpreted that. Just for the for the aggregators out there, the sports media blogs. Yeah. be like, Jim Nance, cold to buck. Yes. And, and it's starting to thaw. Uh, I, I don't know. For some reason, it's not like we had, we, I was kidding, obviously about the meetings. I, we just don't ever interact. I, I think 
Yeah. I wish we did more because I feel like we all have similar experiences. Every sport's different. Al's been through different generations of players and how the the play-by-play has changed over the years, what fans expect out of a play-by-play guy. I, you know, I, I wish I knew them better, but I just don't. Probably the guy I talk to the most is Tariko. And uh, another fantastic play-by-play guy who literally could do anything as he proves every time he shows up on TV. Well, maybe that's a generational thing because Tariko's your generation. He's our generation. We're all kind of, kind of, kind of relatively the same age. We, I did your podcast, and we ended up. We, even though I was the guest, I, I, I flipped it on you a little bit, like I like to do when I come on as guest. But, but we were talking about how. Um, how much I hated you in the mid two thousands, which we've already talked about on on this podcast, and then how how that evolved for a bunch of different ways. So you can listen to the new podcast you have with uh, Oliver Hudson, Daddy Issues, because I'm on that this week. But you're um, our first guest. Let's not let's not slough that off. You are the uh, you're the Bill Murray to our combined Letterman. You you it are. Was, it was an honor. Plus, we did it on Zoom, which I think all of us are trying to figure out. But um. It, it was actually fun. I felt like we're all in the same room together, even though we were on uh, in three different locations. But one but of- here's the thing, and you and I never talked about this. We should have on my podcast, Daddy Issues. Uh, I for whatever reason, on my public television as a kid, and as we've determined, we are basically the exact same age. We used to have the show Zoom, which I think originated. In Boston, right? Wasn't that a Boston right. kids show that that people of a certain yeah. age will know what we're talking about? Nobody else will, but uh, yeah, that's that's. Then, I remember, I remember the theme song. I, I watched that w- whenever it was on. I watched it religiously. So we were talking a little bit, but I want to go into it more because there was one piece of it that we didn't talk about. You, so you come in, you're young, and you've been pretty open about trying to figure out what your style was. You get, you get that job at a, you know, you're doing major events. You're barely even, were you even 30 at that point when you were getting some of those gigs? Like in your late twenties? Yeah. My first world series, Yankees, Braves in 96, I was 27. Yeah. So it's going through, you're still trying to kind of figure out what your persona and your style and all that is. And at that point, there's a, a huge summer all hangover. And Summerall is, you know, Summerall is the guy that uh, I think Summerall and Madden together, but especially how Summerall did football play-by-play specifically. It was like, oh, that's how you do it. The the play-by-play guy just kind of sets picks, says as little as possible, (laughs) and lets the color guy run amok. And you're in there and you're trying to do your version of the summer thing. But I, I didn't realize this till recently. Some of this interviews you've given and stuff, you eventually realized you were doing a summer impersonation and you had to break out of that and try to figure out what your own voice was at. What year was, what year did it really hit you? Like I'm not being fully Joe Buck yet. Well, I mean, you know, this is, this is stuff that I go to bed thinking about and stuff that I wake up thinking about. And, and sometimes I see highlights, uh, of games that I've done and I cringe, uh, and I, I don't like them. Uh, when, when did this dawn on me? It dawned on me after 2011 when I had uh, a paralyzed vocal cord and I got through it. I kept working. I got it 
It's in my book. I have no problem talking about the whole hair plug thing that I did and I got intubated and it sat on my laryngeal nerve and I came out of it unable to really make a loud noise at all. And I, I couldn't keep my air. I couldn't really talk through an entire long sentence. It was, I was shaken to my core. And when it came back, I thought, I, I love what I do so much. And I think I've taken it for such granted at, at this point in my life that now that I have this voice back, I'm just going to let it fly. And, and I think I, that's what made me really realize that I wasn't, I, I wasn't myself. I was trying to be somebody else. And I think as far as football, two things happened. One, yeah, we took over for the greatest team ever in Summerall and Madden. Two, it was three guys, and it was Troy Aikman and Chris Collinsworth, and I was trying somehow to get out of the way as much as I could. So it kind of fit that minimalist style, but I had kind of a uh, there, there was a, there was a lack of excitement to my voice that when I listen back to it, I'm like, ah, God, it just drives me nuts. And so it was a lot of things that happened in my life on and off the air that forced me to really evaluate the job I was doing and to have more fun and let it fly. And, and that's kind of where I've come out from 2012 on. Well, the good news is nobody ever watches old games. So at least you're set. Oh, wait, no, that's all we're doing right now. I, I you know, know what it sucks. Well, you had a good one this Sunday. You had Pat's Falcons, a, a game that's near and dear to my heart that has to be the craziest football game of all time. But what you were just saying, I feel the same way about uh, the, the, me as a writer where I can't really read anything I've written before like 2008 and it's stuff like I had a pretty big audience there. There's so there's a couple of things where I'm like, ah, I would do like 85% of that 90% of that. But I look back at that stuff now. I didn't really know what I was doing until I was like 39, 40, something like that. And I'm sure it sounds like announcing is kind of similar to that. It is. But I was thinking about this when I was getting ready to interview you. And I, and I think the big difference is this. When I show up to work, the action's going to happen no matter what. And and I'm I have to be ready for it and I have to give it my best and I've I've never given a game anything less than my best. I think sometimes I got too in my head and I listened to too much noise about you're rooting for this team or you're rooting against that team or and so I tried to play it down the middle and what came out in the wash was just kind of flat. Um but for you, when I was thinking about you and you're making a name for yourself and you're really changing the way people looked at sports writers and you're you're this Internet sensation, I don't know how you stare at a blank Word document, start in on it and don't just constantly go back over. I can do that better. I can make a better reference here. This can be funnier. This is, I, I would never turn anything in. The difference is I, I have to be ready and it's going to happen whether I'm, I'm calling it or not for you. You're generating it. You're self-starting and that man, I don't know when you're young and you're trying to make a dent and trying to establish yourself, how you were able to just keep writing and, and able to hit the send button. And now I can't write anything. Yeah, and I think it's like uh it's almost like race car driving or something. When you when you're younger and you're a writer, your fingers start moving, you just kind of go with whatever happens. And that's the hardest thing 
that's the hardest feeling to keep going as you get older. Because when you get older, you become naturally more safe. You know, you, I you, think we all you are. tend to I, talk, you talk yourself out of stuff. And it's the same reason, like with marketing, you know, the ad demo that they really care about is 18 to 34. Cause those are the people that are most likely to switch their opinion on something or be impetuous. You get older, you get more stuck in your ways and for writing that gets really dangerous. Cause you're just less likely to take chances every time you write. I think we're all too safe. I, I think I'm too safe. I think that's the reason why I wanted to even do a podcast where it's kind of off on the side and whatever I say there can kind of live over there. I'm smart enough to know that if I say something really moronic or stupid or offensive or whatever, it will bleed into my other life and could end up, you know, costing me my job, I, theoretically. But I think I think social media, you handle social media a hell of a lot better than I do. I, I think growing up as the fat kid, growing up as my dad's son, always trying, feeling like I have to prove myself it doesn't matter who's shooting at me on Twitter or whatever it may be. I take a lot of that stuff not well. I, I really, I, I it it hits, it hits hard. And sometimes I have a tough time putting it off to the side. That's why there have been times where I've just taken it out of my life. Otherwise, it's just too suffocating. And I, it, but But I think I was talking about this with somebody today, that I feel like social media has taken a lot of the personality away from people who are on the air or doing what you do or whatever. I, I assume every time you hit send, you think this is, a, you know, back when you were writing, you're thinking this is a, this is a good piece, but there's going to be somebody who's going to rip this thing to fucking shreds. And, and I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to withstand that and stand on my own knowledge that what I just wrote was good. And that, and that's, that's how I wish to be more on the air. I wish to go back to how I used to be before social media, when even when I was 27 doing the World Series in New York, I watched those highlights and I'm like, man, I'm doing more stuff as a 27-year-old scared out of his wits kid than I would be willing to do now because everybody's been kind of shoved into the middle lane for fear of getting ripped or whatever. And and it just sucks. It's It's too bad because I think a lot of people aren't my dad was famous for his sense of humor. Harry Carey was Harry Carey. You know, all the greats, Howard Cosell, they all, they all were just themselves. And I don't feel like anybody is really willing or able anymore to be themselves. And, and that's, well, that's a bad thing. Social media has had the biggest impact on that, like by far of any other possible cause we could come up with. Because, you know, I look at like, yeah, and I would take back a million things I've written over the years, but I also didn't really have the fear of getting piled on if I wrote something that came out the wrong way or if I wrote some angle that just turned out to be dumb. And, you know, I was I was on my own for four years, basically, with my old website, and I took a lot of chances with columns I wrote back then, and some of them didn't work. You try gimmicks, it's like you're a stand-up comedian. You're on stage, you try stuff. If it doesn't work, you get rid of that. And the next time you come out, you do something different. I think, I think we're losing the ability to, to, to just be like, fuck it. I'll just try this or fuck it. I'll just write this. Everybody's pretty safe. And that's why you've seen in the last four years, it's really turned into a genre. These, these really, really poignant, um, first person essays about people talking about like, here was this thing I battled through and then I got out on the other side, which are 
a lot of times really interesting, but they're also like pretty safe to write. You know, if you're writing, if you're writing about some bad thing that happened to you or some ailment that you had or some, something that was wrong with you that you fixed and you write about your whole journey, how, how that played out, nobody's going to shit on you for that, you know? And I, and I do wonder like with, especially with first person essays, we've seen like a rise of those, but not a lot of rise of just people people being like, I have a take on this. I know it's crazy. I'm going to get shit for this, but here's my take anyway. I, I wish we saw more of that. I think that's just gone. I do too. Um, and, and I'm not crying about it. I, I'm, I, I think the worst thing I can ever come off as is like a little baby or, uh, you know, about this kind of stuff. I'm not, I'm just saying that when I look back on my dad's career and I was riding shotgun for a lot of that, cause he took me around with him I was in every National League city by the time I was 12, and I was two seats over to his right watching him. He had such a freedom to do what, say and do whatever the hell crossed his mind. And and that has to be, that's a feeling that I don't think I've I've had ever. You know, because when I was starting, I was trying to sound older than I was. I was doing the Cardinals at 21 years old. And then when I by the time Fox came along, I was 24, 25 doing the NFL. I'd never done football in my life. And I'm trying to navigate my way through that. Then baseball shows up and now you're on a big stage and you're a little scared to step to the center and grab the spotlight and say something that may upset people. So I, I think I will enter, exist and die in this business without ever feeling like, like I can totally be myself. And, and that's, you know, I, only because I compare it to my dad do I do I know that I fall short uh, in that category. Well, the other obstacle you had is that you hate every team in every league. Correct. Um, that's that's well established by now. But I was thinking it's, it's tough. I was, it's tough when you're against all 120 professional teams or whatever they're whatever the number is. It's an amazing it's accomplishment. It's, a, it's it really actually is. An amazing. I don't know how you do it. Um, <laughs> And it and to me, it's mostly a baseball thing. And that's why I was thinking, you know, when you were talking about you starting out and you had these opinions, at least on some level, when you were beginning, you were representing the Boston fan. You were representing, you know, you were crying out uh, in, you know, at times in defense of your your Red Sox or your Celtics or your Patriots or whatever it might have been. And you, you're always going to find people that that are going to, if it's well written, I think, or well presented, they're going to latch on to that from from yeah. that whole New England style. But when I show up, I'm in the worst position because I have to scream and yell for both teams and neither fans hear that all year in baseball. I've done the other way. I've done it for the Cardinals for I don't even know how long I was there, 12, 15 years, something like that. And and it's it's like I said on our podcast, I it's it's state run TV, and and that's how fans want to hear it. They want to hear somebody telling them on TV that their team is winning or losing, and they know that that person feels the same way they do. And when they sense that, you know, I think all this stuff has become a hell of a lot more tribal than it's ever been. And if you're perceived as being outside the tribe. Man, they want blood, and I get it because I'm a Blues fan, and I, I watched them win the Stanley Cup against, obviously, the Bruins, and it was like the greatest fan experience I've ever had, and yet 
in the finals for as great as Doc Emmerich is and on the way to the finals for as close as I am with Kenny Albert, who I love and is wonderful at what he does, I wanted the Blues announcers to do it because I'm like, these guys, they don't care or they're, they're rooting for the Bruins or they're, and it's just, it's just stupid. And I, I was, I was doing the same stuff that I hate when people do it to me. I said on your podcast that we did how for Red Sox fans in 03 and 04 until we actually won, just seeing your face was like seeing the doctor <laughs> who, t who told me that my dad wasn't going to make it or something like it was just, <laughs> Your face was associated with pain. Right. And and that's it's a tough Pavlovian. one. To, it's yeah, Pavlovian. It's Pavlovian. That's not your fault, but it's a tough one to bounce back from because I'm like, ah, oh, fucking Joe Bug. All right, here we go. Run the Buckner montage, Fox, you right. fuckheads. Like, it just right. made me so mad, but it's like, that's how you're selling a game to the entire country. You're not doing the game for the Red Sox fans. You're doing it for the person in Cincinnati who doesn't give a shit. Right. Well, I learned from 04 with the Red Sox. And because of what you just said, it is part of the story. As much as you are so sad and poor, the late, great Bill Buckner is as tired as everybody in New England is of seeing that ball bounce through his legs or past him or whatever at uh, Shea, right? That was at Shea Stadium. Uh, as sick of that as you are, it's part of the bigger story for the guy sitting in Norman, Oklahoma, who's going, hey, uh, how long has it been since the Red Sox haven't won a long time, right? And you got to go, hey, it's been since 1986. And here's and I don't start that video, as you know. I don't go, hey, why don't we run the Buckner video here? I just have to put my voice to it when it rolls. But so then the Cubs are in it, and they're in 2016, and and during part of game seven, it felt like, okay, they're, they're cruising toward this win. You have to go. And I almost gave a disclaimer, like, look, I know cub fans are tired of hearing <laughs> right. about 108 years. I know you're sick of it, but it's been, you know, here's what's happened in the world since the last time the Cubs won the world series. Every cub fan wants to kill me for even bringing that up, but it's, you can't ignore it. It's too big a part of the story. And if you do, you're just not doing your job because you're scared of somebody in uh, Highland Park, Illinois, you know, tweeting something mean to you. I, I guess you have to just live with it. Well, the Falcons Patriots game that I just watched, it's, it's good when the announcers are doing it, when it's in your favor of your team, there's this moment in the second half, you guys run, you coming out of the commercial, you run one of those fancy graphic packages that take like two days to do. And it's basically right. <laughs> all of the titles Boston has won versus all of the titles Atlanta won. And at that point, Boston had won like 36 or 37 titles. We won three since you did the graphic. And right. then it's like, and it's like one, you know, 17 NBA titles, zero or one NBA title for the Hawk and just going all the way through. And I remember when that happened during the game, getting like this strange sense of confidence because I'm looking at it from like my old dead Red Sox DNA standpoint. I'm like, man, if I'm an Atlanta fan, I'd be so nervous right now. We've never won the Super Bowl. Somehow Brady's head hasn't been cut off yet. He's still alive. Right. And now they're running this montage at me. I would be having a heart attack. And as it yeah. turned out, it was a justified heart attack. Yeah, no. And, and for people in Atlanta, when that ran, they're going, oh, these guys are just rubbing it in. Yeah, we haven't won anything. And you know, for you guys now, you've had more duck boat. I mean, the duck boat tours 
uh, which I've been on in the great city yeah. of Boston. Uh, the great Garibaldi was our was our tour guide and, and oh. a fantastic presentation of the history of the city of Boston and going down into the water and all that. But I mean, those things have been they've been used more for parades than they were for their original use, which I guess were like in World War Two or something. Well, I think it's over. Fortunately for America, I think the run has finally ended. Um, the Red Sox are in transition. Oh, are you just talking yourself into, you're just talking no, yourself back th- into your listen, old self so I'm that contra- you can be excited. Contractually obligated to talk about it. Ah, it's just, you know, it's a new decade. Can't We can't look backwards. We got to look for the next one. I have a couple uh, random questions for you. Okay. Do you think a three-man booth works? No. No, I don't. I, I think... Well, I take that back because I do like what, and I'm not, I'm not a diehard NBA fan. I, I, I barely know who's in the league. Uh, and I'm sorry. I know that strikes deep to your core, but I think the you guys, you don't have a basketball team. You in St. Louis, they got I didn't rid of grow the up NBA. It's not your fault. The aforementioned yeah. Hawks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I, I think the NBA guys, I think Breen, uh, and Van, Van Gundy, Gundy and Jackson. And Jackson. Yeah. I, I really think that's terrific. Um, now, I'm, I'm a fringe fan, so I, I enjoy what they do. I don't know what the perception is, but I think it's really hard because I've lived in a couple of them. To me, when two people can't look at each other in the eyes and have a conversation uh, and just go from that forward when there's another person in there. Um, and I think I've been in three, three man booths. Yeah. You, the mechanics of it, it's, it's probably too, uh, intricate or boring to talk about, but if a play happens and I shut up after the catch is made and let's say, you know, Aikman takes it and he'll do whatever he saw. Well, while Aikman's talking, Back in the day, Chris Collinsworth is is hitting a button and talking to the producer in the truck and not listening to anything Troy just said because he's calling for what replay he wants. So there, you think, well, it's going to be great because it's going to be differing opinions. There, are no, most of the time, you end up repeating what the other guy just said or some version of that because nobody is listening to each other. It's way yeah. easier, and the game breathes way more if it's just two people. You know, if, if I have something I want Troy to hear me say, I'll grab him by the arm uh, because I want a reaction out of him when we're doing a game. That can't exist when you've got three people. It just, I I, th- I think it's really hard to do it that way. I I told you how I did a three-man booth with Tariko and Jalen. And basically the two, two of the people are going to control most of it. Because if you're going to have any dialogue back and forth at all, it's too hard to do with three. Because as you said, you can't look at each other. You're all staring ahead at the court. So you don't know when you're stepping in. So usually one person has to lay out, which is what Tariko did for us the first three quarters. He just let me and Jalen do our thing. Then fourth quarter, the game got good and he had to kind of take over. So now we laid back and he did all the play-by-play for it. I don't really... I can't really think of many scenarios where I was like, thank God they had three people here. I always feel like it's better with two. And that, you know, it's funny because there's some parallels with studio shows, which I've probably done more studio stuff than you have. Um, yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. The pregame shows, three is the best number. Three, it's a conversation and you're really playing off each other. You can see each other. 
once it gets to four, you're just trading monologues. And and then if there's back and forth, it's usually two of the four people. And then the other two are just kind of bystanders. And it, it's almost like if you go to dinner and there's three people, it's always going to be the best dinner. Like if you go with like two of your fancy Hollywood friends, like you, you Paul Rudd and John Hamm, just the three <laughs> of you for dinner, you're going to have an awesome dinner. You bring the fourth person in. Now people are splitting off. And now there's right. like two simultaneous two-person combos. And it's just never, it's really hard to get the four all, you know, interacting in a good way. And I, I don't know why TV networks don't understand this. It's yeah, I, I I totally agree. And for one year, I hosted Fox NFL Sunday. And I yeah, they took I it on the road in 06. And I our production meetings, which took place initially on the phone on Thursday, you'd go through the slate of games and it would be, you know, game one was Cincinnati, Cleveland. Game two was New England against whatever, Tampa Bay. I'll, I'll rub it in right on down the line. And it was like, okay, <laughs> so for the first game, for the first game we're going to talk about, we're going to go in order, Jimmy, Terry, Howie. And then on the second yep. game you bring up, it's going to be Howie, Jimmy, Terry. And then on the next game, it's going to be Jimmy, Howie, Terry. And it's, I, I, I just want to talk. I, I don't, how can this be at all conversational and, and appear unrehearsed if I have to, everybody has to wait their turn. And so we would do that. We'd do the pregame and it, it, it was awkward and we were on site and it was the NFL, not college football. So it didn't really work. And then I would race down after a doubleheader game and I would host the post game and the post game. They're like, I don't know why we can't capture the energy we have in the post game and have that for the pregame. I said, because in the post game, we don't have rundowns and nobody knows who's supposed to talk when we can be, you know, I know that Howie can run with this. I know Terry can do it. I know Jimmy can do it. Let just let us talk. And, and instead of having it all scripted out, I guess that's done for the director and, and some sort of semblance of, of, uh, of a show rundown, but my God, I mean, if, if the four of us can't talk about a game that pops up, then nobody's doing any homework whatsoever. And it just comes off stale and stilted. You know, I think part of that is it's, it's fear of like a producer doing their job, just wanting to make sure, all right, what's my yeah. job in this? Well, I, I created the rundown. I threw them this segment. Like they, they, the lack of control is makes them vulnerable if things don't work out. They'd be like, well, what just happened there? We, I, I, you know, you let those guys go and it was a disaster, but I'm with you. Like when we, so we would have the first Saturday day countdown, it was me and magic and Wilbon and Jalen. And we all really got along and we would be in the war room, like watching basketball games. And there was like real energy with how we talk, but in the pregame, everything had to be mapped out. And it was the same thing you said. It's like, all right, we're going to leave with this magic. You go. And then Will Bond will go next. And we're basically just trading monologues. But then right. the most fun, the most fun would be if it was a doubleheader and we had to fill time between the the first game ended too early. And then the second one, we had to kill nine minutes. And it was like, now it feels like us. It's like, it, 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 here we go. Now we have like, now we're just shooting the shit for nine minutes because it's not scheduled or planned. I don't know and why it's TV engaging and it's entertaining and it can be off the cuff and more funny. And 
I know. And it's it's like, I can't tell you how many times people I've, I've seen producers go, yeah, we, if we can just capture what's happening in the green room when everybody's watching games. You know, if we could put that on TV, it's like, well, then I, I have an idea. How about if we just walk out there and go? Can we do right. that? You, if you count me down, I'll start, I'll lead into something and let's just see what happens. Let's be crazy like that. And it's live TV. I, you know, that's the world I live in. And when I hosted that show, it's like, if I read one more script coming back from break, I am going to spontaneously combust with the, I, give me the game and let, what, where, where do you want to get, what's the out? How do we get into it? And what do you want to go to next? And in the middle part, we'll handle it. We got it. We, I, I can, I can engage these guys. And if I can't, then I shouldn't be sitting there. I think my favorite thing I've ever done sports wise on TV was the NBA draft because of how unpredictable it was. And we still had to stick to these, you know, these formula stuff. Like the guy would get drafted and Billis would get like 45 to 50 seconds on each guy. Cause they had to run the package and Billis is, you know, he's unbelievable. He's he so knows good. who all these guys are. I yeah. mean, there's no way you can know. I would imagine, so you know, all these college thing. kids. Right. So he, he has this thing that ends and then it was like a free for all. And it was, we had Reese hosting, who was the best, probably the best host I've ever worked with. Um, and he kind of knows exactly when to come in and out, but it, it felt like unstructured. And I just loved it. I was like, I, we were there for like, I don't know, four and a half straight hours, not peeing, right. drinking water. You can't pee. You, you develop these superhuman kidneys because you're locked into the chairs with the wires. So you can't get up anyway. And if you get up, it's super risky. Yeah. And you're, and it's just, it just flew and it was so much fun. I really loved it. I'm because sure like, you can, you when you're sitting there and you're doing a draft that the fun is not just talking about you know, who's coming into the league, but where do they fit and what happened last year and how you see their team developing going into the next year. And that, that, that should just be conversation. If you know your stuff and obviously you do, and the guys that were on set knew what, what these NBA teams needed and what they how they were going to be put together going forward. Hey, let, let it go. Let's see what comes out of this. Could be really interesting. Could be boring, but Let's let's give it a shot. Let's hope that it's 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 spontaneous and fun. Well, at least in football, they figured out two man is the way to go, because all of the signature booths are two men booths. And I think if you're ever gonna have a third person in there, I almost feel like it would have to be somebody who offered something completely different. You know, like like what what ESPN tried to do that year with Kornheiser, which. I just think the mix of the three guys wasn't right, but the idea of having Kornheiser in the booth, I th I still stand by the idea. I thought it was a really good idea. It just didn't work with who they had. So much of it has to do with the chemistry of, of you know, who the people are, and that has to work beyond just the idea. I but, think you also have to have, like, I worked for a guy at Fox who started at David Hill who when he came in, I remember Ed Gorin, who was right under him and was the executive producer, whatever David's exact title was. He he ran Fox Sports. And Ed Gorin had come over from CBS with John Madden, with Pat Summerall, with Matt Millen, with Dick Stockton, with all these guys. And I remember it at our introductory dinner, and I was 25 or whatever I was at the time, and Ed Gorin saying, we finally have a boss in TV who doesn't give a shit what Rudy Martsky says. And now, mm. now Rudy Martsky, 
who was the longtime USA Today columnist who wielded more power in the business than anybody before or since, because it was a one-stop shop for everybody in sports television, executives, announcers, producers, whatever it might be. And, and now that that entity is Twitter. So you have to have, I think, a boss that's willing to go. Twitter may say this sucks, but I really believe in Tony Kornheiser fitting in here. I really believe I people may not like it. it may, they may not like it now, but I, I am confident that this is going to work long, long term. And I feel like everybody's so knee jerk. And when it's something different, the the initial reaction on social media, of course, is going to be scathing no matter what. There are few exceptions to that. And you have to have, I think, the balls and the willingness to to suffer all that and plow ahead and believe in your plan. And, you know, if you have a good eye for talent, then, you know, that that's that's those are the special booths or those are the those are the special times in this business. Yeah, reacting to what people on Twitter think is such a strange thing because their reaction is always going to be skewed toward being negative and and getting jokes off and things like that. If you you go to Twitter and everybody's just like, you know who's great, so and so. Yeah, I read this great thing today. You know right. who does a good job, but we don't talk about enough blank. Like yeah. that's the Twitter is not that. It's the it's the opposite of that. So the fact that so many executives and you know, radio programmers and stuff. They're just looking at Twitter mentions to try to get a feel for what America thinks. It's like, how about going with your gut? What do you think? Yeah. No, what, I know. What do you care I mean, about? I, I, um, I, yeah, that's, that's the part I never understood, but I, I don't know that that'll change going forward. Can we talk about you? You must have a, at least a pretty good feel as a scout for who would be good just because you're thinking of it from the aspect of, all right, if Troy got hit by a bus tomorrow, who would I want to do football games with? And you're looking at, you know, the current guys. Like Peyton Manning always gets thrown around as somebody who would be an awesome color guy. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know how candid he would be. I really was convinced Romo was going to be good only because I had spent a little time with him. And the way his brain worked and his sense of humor and stuff, it was just yeah. clear he was meant to do this. Are there guys playing now that you feel could potentially be Collinsworth, Troy, Romoe when they retire? Yeah, that's a good question. And I agree with you on the two guys you just said. I think the best thing Tony Romo did was he got into this business almost like he'd never watched a football game on television in his life. Like he didn't try to sound like somebody else. He just went with his gut. And I, I he's, he's obviously been handsomely rewarded for going with that gut, but, but good for him. And, and he's changed the way I think people, you know, look at some of these analysts. So, and, and Peyton, I feel the same way. You don't know until, you know, you don't know. And because I'm old enough, you're old enough to remember a time when Bill Walsh was going to get in TV and man, he's brilliant. He knows the game. He can talk. He's, you know, good looking guy elder statesman in the league and it just didn't work. Same with Joe Montana. And it, it's, it's a different, <laughs> Joe is bad. <laughs> it's, Joe, it's a different is, discipline. Yeah. It's tough. What it's, made Joe Montana great was not what was going to be, uh, highlighted or emphasized by calling a play in the 18 seconds you have to formulate an opinion on what you just saw. And then, 
you know, can't do that over and over and over for three and a half hours. I mean, that's, that's a different thing. So I'm with you. I think Peyton Manning could be amazing, unbelievable. He might be the best one to ever do it, but I want to see it. I, I want to see, you know, how he was a guy that when he was playing, you could hand him a script. He hosted SNL for God's sake. You could hand him a script and he can pull it off. He's smart. He's brilliant, but let's just see how it would go. So I, I think Drew Brees would be really great. Um, as really, I do. I'm you on the fence with like him. I don't. don't. I, I, w- I wonder if he's too nice of a guy because I do think there's a piece of this. If you're the only person, and Troy is probably the only one who's had real success, who I don't think is wired this way, where you just kind of have to not give a shit. You know, like right. even he, like he, you you're right. At, he's not wired that way at all. Troy's not one of those. I'm just saying this. I don't care if it hurts somebody's feelings. Romo will actually cross a line or two. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's good. Barkley's obviously like that. I think Madden in the eighties, I'd never heard announcers question play calls or coaching or why somebody was doing this or that. Like he, he had a curiosity that he didn't mind criticizing. I breeze is such a nice guy. I would worry that if, he was doing it, he would just be too nice. And I don't really want too nice when I'm in, I need people to be critical sometimes. Yeah. So no, I don't I, know. I, I don't, it could go either way for me. I just think I'm, I'm looking for somebody who can formulate. Like I saw Drew talk uh, on a thing from his office on the today show the other day, after he donated $5 million to that, that was excellent. I saw that piece where Hoda oh started God. crying at the end. Yeah. That was emotional. Yeah, that was it really was. good. And, and yeah. I thought, you know, this is a guy that really can put a point together and there's not a lot of extra words. There's not a lot of him and hawing. I just want to see somebody go right at it. I want to see somebody see something or want to say something and they go right to it. Good point. And, and that that's what I see with with Drew Brees. I think Philip Rivers could be interesting. So that was um, the guy I was going to mention. I think he's he's the one I have the highest hopes for. I was actually bummed when he signed with the Colts because I thought he was going to be the Monday Night Football guy. And I you could tell from the interviews. I I I always say this on the pod: like, go look at the post game interviews. Who has a personality? Who seems like they don't give a shit? who seems like they're kind of a little bit of a loose cannon. Like those are the guys that are going to be good on TV. Richard Jefferson was a pretty obvious one. Richard Jefferson's really good at hoops now. That was a pretty right. obvious one. Cause he was a good interview when he played, you know, and, and you know who I think would be good. And you know, you know me, I'm not for all for uh, sons of people in broadcasting, getting into broadcasting, but I think we've all seen Chris long do what he's done he's really transitioned out of the game extremely well. I think he's more philanthropically inclined with his water boys effort. And, you know, he's got a podcast. Yes, but I don't know that he wants to do games, but his brother does. And Kyle long, I think is really sharp, really funny, uh, uh, has a quick wit and, and could be one of those guys. That's not a quarterback uh, telling you about what's going on you know, in the trenches and could probably still pull back and, and give you a bigger picture kind of comment. But I, you know, you think back to what happened with Witten and Booger and Joe Tessitore. First of all, it's a three-man booth. Secondly, you know, those guys really, you know, it, it's hard to start and just go and then just say, hey, it accept us. And Witten had never done it. 
And and Booger hadn't done much, uh, you know, game calling. Game wise, yeah. Game wise, and now and now they're not only that; they're in separate locations. They're not even close enough to to grab the guy's arm or to make eye contact and say, "Hey, I got something good here." They're they're waiting and feeling. I felt that in golf. It's like I I'm not used to this. So I'm I'm sitting in a in a permanent location here in a booth. And our first year, I had Norman next to me, and we had Brad Faxon on 17. He's miles away. We had Steve Flesh on 16. He's more miles away. And nobody can see each other. So I, you know, I, I don't know that they had the best situation to walk no, into. That, it, I just didn't think it was fair. I didn't yeah, think it was, was fair. Yeah, that was a suicide mission by ESPN, putting Booger in a different spot on top of all the other stuff. Like, what were the yeah. odds that was going to work? You could try to do that right now with you and Troy and anybody in a third spot, and it's not going to be uh, easy. You, Absolutely you not. You mentioned the golf thing. It's funny. Like, we talk about the Twitter overreactions, that first major that Fox did. I don't remember what year that was. 15. And pe- people reacted like you were Michael Jackson dangling kids over a balcony. Like, they were so, <laughs> ups- so upset. It's like, oh, Fox is oh, ruining golf. Great. Why are they you're doing right. this? Ah! Right. Oh, I know. It was like, it was fine. You guys were working out the kinks. It was definitely a little awkward, but I, you know, now you look five years later, you guys are a thousand times better. I didn't even think it was bad to begin with, but yeah, uh, no, it was funny. I walked, I walked out of that booth in Chambers Bay, which was, it was just a weird looking U.S. Open. You'd never had, you had never had a U.S. Open uh, on, this grass that uh, the greens were not good. Players were complaining. There was a glare. I, I, the main critic in the New York times, Richard Sandemir wrote that the Fox camera operators couldn't follow the ball. They're the same camera operator. Uh, camera operators are not like NBC guys. And then only CBS guys. They're the same people. And, and they were, yeah. it was just hard to see. And so it was, we were, we had a lot of stuff stacked against us, but yeah, I I feel like we've grown there, but you're right. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. So if you're the ESPN guys, you know, and now you just launch into this, I felt it in golf. I've been there. It's just not easy to start up and just go, okay, now trust us. You know, we're going to cover your U S open and we're going to do it just as well as everybody else has. We're going to try new stuff. We're going to put microphones in cups and all that without people just absolutely freaking out. Yeah. Do we have a baseball season? Yeah, I I go back and forth on this. I, I talked to one of the Cardinal owners the other day, and he said, right now, I would take July 1st and run. Um, and and I, I kind of feel like that's that's the point where it has to be going by July 1st. I don't see some two month season and then starting some crazy round robin baseball playoff tournament. I just, I, I think they have the ability if they want to this year coming up, if they do play and and I, I want to lean toward yes to change it up with how they do the postseason. I just think we have to get a better handle on, you know, what the next two months look like. I, maybe we start, and there's no crowds. There's no there's no fans in the stands. Um, but I think there's just too much invested in this thing that unless it's just impossible, I, I think they're going to. Yes, I think they will play somehow, some way, starting at the latest in the month of July. The problem is 
with baseball, NBA to a lesser degree, but I do think those guys can stay in shape on their own to some degree. Yeah. In baseball, you really need at least, I would say like two and a half weeks to just, you know, to throw and get the rhythm and the, the hitting, like that could lead to some of the worst baseball we've ever watched if they <laughs> just rush back. But I, I think July 1st is the date for the NBA and for MLB. I think for both of those, because NBA can't go past Labor Day and it just can't, you can't bleed into football. And then when do you start the next season? I don't see any way that works. So for both of them, you know, we have, I would say 10, 11 weeks here to see how bad April's going to be in the United States and around the world, whether what people's appetite will be for sports to even come back. Do people want to go sit in the stands again? You know, the NFL will be the one that just pushes the envelope with all this stuff. They'll, they'll, they'll be back as soon as people can be back. And I think when you look at, uh, the rabid fan bases that those football games have, there's not a lot of games by September. You're hoping things will be a little bit better. Football to me seems reasonable that it comes back. Baseball seems like the one in the most danger. Because yeah. at least basketball had a season already. They can just go to the playoffs, basically. Baseball is at zero. Yeah, know? well, as as you and I sit here and talk, um, we're, it's April 1st. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago that the president was saying, I want to get this country back up and running by Easter. And then a handful of days later, it was like, no, it's it's going to be the end of April. And then, you know, as we make our way through April, I think this... The story, this virus, the reaction to it, the curve, everything else, the medical experts, I mean, that that is changing rapidly. So I, I think to sit here on the 1st of April and go, it, start talking about anything in July, August, September, I, it seems, that seems like five years from now to me. Yeah. And, and I feel like I so many things are going to change between now and then recommendations, wear masks, who know people just go stir crazy. I, I don't know, but I, I just, I, I will just go back to, they need to be playing by the first of July or that first 13 days. I think the all-star game is the 14th, whatever that Tuesday is in there. You know, if you can get 80, 81 games in, have an all-star game, however they want to shape that, I, I think you can have a season. I do. Um, before we go, why'd you, why'd you finally want to do a podcast? I think it's the same, it's in the same category as to why I wrote a book. You know, it's like, uh, you think, you know, me, you've heard me on TV for 20 plus years. I've, you know, done some of these big events and people I think have a perception of me, whether it's the Randy Moss thing or, uh, where, you know, I came off like some prude or whatever it might be. I just, I want to get more of my personality out there. Now, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe I'm a moron and I'm not that entertaining and it's going to suck, but I want to give it a shot. And that's why I wrote a book. And it was, whether you talk to my therapist, you talk to my wife, or you get inside my head, it's the best thing I ever did for myself. And I said to the publisher, I don't care if one person buys this thing or 1 billion people buy my book. I just want to write it. And that's how I feel about the podcast. If one person tunes in and they they know a little bit more about me and they're entertained, great. It, and and if not, it's fine. I just want to put myself out there 
before it's all said and done to, to just show who I am and what I'm actually about. What made you want to co-host a podcast with a living lunatic? <laughs> Your text to me was so funny after we finished. Um, yeah, he's 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 wired so differently than me. I, yeah. I am so I am worried about everything. He is worried about nothing. I am for the most part straight laced. He doesn't even have laces. I, I, he and I, it's like the odd couple, but for whatever reason, probably through golf as much as anything, because we're golf partners, we're playing at a couple events every year. Our wives are friends. We have become really, really close, great friends. And I think he is funny as hell. And I, and, and I think he thinks I'm funny for right or wrong. So it seemed like if I did it with Troy or if I did it, I just, I don't want to do just strict sports. I just want to do other stuff. And he seemed like if there's a, a person out of category X, he's, he's right at the top of the list for me. Well, whatever dynamic you guys have, it worked. Cause I said like four or five things I've never said on a podcast Good. before talking Good. about like my, my parents divorce and, He's one of those guys that as soon as it starts to get like kind of personal, that's his way. You can see his eyes light up. He's been through so much therapy. Tell me me more about the divorce. Like you can uh, see it's like you talking about game seven of the world series. Right. It's like, so then what happened? Where did your parents exchange you? How'd they do that? And man, you you hung up and he was like, oh, we should have done more about the exchange. What that was like for (laughs) Bill, what that was like and how he felt. And if, if he wanted to go back to the other parent, and I'm like, Ollie, you just got to, take your foot off the gas and let's just relax. And, and I, he's good for me cause he does get me to relax. And, and I think I'm good for him cause I actually make him, uh, adhere to schedules and call people back and whatever it might be. So he's got a million daddy issues. I've got my own because I followed my dad into this business and I will forever think of myself as my dad's son and others will too of a certain age. And, and I'm always trying to kind of, outlive the ghost who was my best friend, like you described your dad. And, and so that's, we all have issues, mommy issues, daddy issues, and it's, it's just a way to get to know people better. All right. Well, the podcast is called daddy issues. You can yeah, subscribe yeah. iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your pods. And, yeah. uh, and this is fun. Good luck with it. Now, now we, this is the, this is the best week you and I have ever had. I, now I feel like if we went out to dinner, we wouldn't have anything to talk about. We just stare at each other. That's we'd why we'd like, have oh, to man, at least. Out. We'd have to. And by the way, in the aforementioned uh, three-person dinner for me, where I have Rudd and Ham, would I have to rent Ham out from you? Do you still hang out with Ham? No, you guys. That your whole section of the country, you're all loyal to each other. First, it's like oh. you guys are like the Crips, the, the Missouri, <laughs> the Missouri, oh, yeah. really, the Blips. Like, who else is? It's. Everybody basically who's ever succeeded in any way, sports or entertainment in the Missouri area, you guys are all like on a text chain. Rudd has that thing, that that charity thing that he does in Kansas City, which I've been to a couple times and it's like Sudeikis and Eric Stone Street and uh, God, who else is there? Uh, David Keckner is there. Yeah. And it's just like on and on and on of all these people that are from Kansas city or from Missouri, or one time had a plane land in Missouri on their way to somewhere else. And it's just 
everywhere you look, it's it's another one. So I don't know what's in the water here in the Midwest, but at least as far as like Will Ferrell movies or whatever, you're going to see some Missourians uh, making you laugh in those things. Well, I don't even know, Rudd, but the story of him and his son after the Chiefs won the Super Bowl, I've heard from like three different people. The, the most emotional father and son reaction at a sporting event, I think, I, I like people were honestly touched by it. Like they were, they were like completely broken by the end of the game. Uh, did that picture make its way out? He sent me because he he sent me a picture of his son Jack, who is such a diehard fan. That but he he's also so, he's, his son's fifteen, right? So he's right he's, in that wheelhouse. He's right in the wheelhouse, and the he most. was so excited that the Chiefs won or were winning at the end that he actually had a nosebleed. And right. I have the I have the picture of Jack hugging and it's just like tears in his eyes and blood coming out of his nose. Looks like he played in the game. And and yeah. he's just that 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 moment for Paul and his son was just so freaking cool. And by the way, Rudd grew up a Steeler fan. Okay. I'm saying that right here, right wow. now. Oh he my was, God. When I first met him, he was a diehard Steeler fan. I'm just saying. So he's a sports bigamist? Uh, he could be accused of that. Wow. Yeah. Back in the day, we were teenagers, uh, 18, 19 years old. And, and, you know, I was just about to launch into my career. And in our early 20s, he was doing bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs. He was doing the dork dance. That's what he was known for out in L.A., if you wanted to get this crazy guy to DJ your bar mitzvah, rudge your guy, and and that's what he was doing. And I remember him specifically telling me that he was a Steeler fan. So if you had told me, like, you know, Rudd's, Rudd's on his second wife or whatever, I'd be like, oh, all right. When you tell me somebody's on their second football team, <laughs> like, oh, my God. But it what? is his hometown team that he's no, kind of... But I will say this about Paul, about all my friends who have achieved some level of celebrity or success. That guy, Paul Rudd, is the exact person he was when I met him when we were 18. And that is the best thing I can say about anybody. But that guy has not changed one iota. He is he is one of the best, most genuine people I've ever met. I, I love that guy and I root for him, but he did root for the Steelers. Yeah. Well, there you go. Joe Buck, good luck with the new podcast. Thanks for coming on mine. And uh, and hopefully we'll get to see you on TV announcing sporting events pretty soon. Yeah, uh, that please. That'd be great. But thanks for having me on. And thanks for coming on and being my uh, my first guest with, uh, with Daddy Issues. Thanks. My pleasure. All right, we're going to get to Alan Yang in one second. First, $2,316. According to the FBI, that's the average dollar loss from a single break-in. It can derail you financially. Here's some advice. Protect your home with Simply Safe, the go-to guys for home security and masters of protection. They protect every door, window, and room with 24-7 professional monitoring. They make it easy for you. No contract, hidden fees, or fine print. It's won a ton of awards from CNET to PC Magazine to The Verge. Prices are always fair and honest. Around-the-clock monitoring, just $15 a month. Three times less than the other guys, just $15 a month. Plus, no contract right now. My listeners get a free HD security camera when you visit simplysafe.com slash BS. Once again, that is Simply Safe with two eyes, simplysafe.com slash BS. All right, Joe Buck was awesome. So is Alan Yang. Here is that interview right now. 
All right, my friend Alan Yang is here. We are on Zoom. This isn't how we intended to do this. You have a new movie coming out on Netflix April 10th. It's called Tiger Tail. You asked me a couple months ago. You were like, hey, man, I want to come on the pod, talk about the I'm like, come on anytime. You're always invited. We thought we would be doing this in person, and now we're wearing headsets. You seem in a happy location. There's trees behind you. Yeah, I'm lucky, man. Los Angeles is not the worst place to be, I guess, right now. Um, it's been nice out the last few days. We can walk around outside, which, you know, my friends in New York don't seem to have as much of that luxury. You just can't walk outside New York and not bump into one million human beings. Um, right. But yeah, thanks for having me on. We, I know we talked about this for a while. These are not the circumstances we envisioned. <laughs> no. We had dinner with, uh, with Chang and Cho probably, what was that, like six weeks ago? It feels like six years ago. It was right before this all started. Yeah, we went to Kisaka yeah. and we had some meat and... and uh, there was no inkling, you know, I mean, we, we had heard rumors of, you know, the stuff happening in China, but, uh, of course, uh, you know, the, the people at the top of this country really, uh, really did a bang up job, really just, <laughs> just tamped life. it down and just, you know, everyone's safe. So no, it, it's, it's, it's scary, man. It's really scary. Um, your life has changed, but then also not changed because you're in the bunker, like writing stuff. I feel like my life has changed dramatically, but then also like I'm still doing podcasts and trying to keep things normal, but both of us are kind of conditioned to create content by ourselves. So I don't, <laughs> I don't we're kind of, kind of uniquely prepared for a quarantine. I feel like. I, I know. Right. It's like, I, you know, we're really lucky. Like we're able to do, you know, look, a lot of our jobs can't be done alone. You know, I can't shoot yeah. a show. I can't direct a movie. I can't do any of that stuff. But if you look at what my job entails, you know, half of it is writing, half of it's writing by yourself, half of it is calls, reading um, other people's scripts and giving notes and, and helping them out. And and half of it is at this point doing press. So yeah, I've been putting the headphones on and doing Zooms, uh, doing, doing <laughs> podcasts and doing radio shows, whatever. Yeah. So it's really like I'm doing three quarters of my job right now. Obviously, um, you know, that's a very fortunate situation. Um, the last time you were, where were you working in 2008 when the writer's strike happened? Oh uh, boy, I think I think very fortunately for me, uh, that strike happened when I was unemployed. <laughs> so oh, there you go. Right before I think it was I, maybe I had gotten hired on Parks and Rec, but that writers room hadn't started, so we were just I was picketing every day, but um, I, I didn't have a job. So it's a very different time in my life from right now, <laughs> where I right. have five jobs. <laughs> um, yeah, I bring that up because after that writer strike happened, the TV industry kind of reset a little bit. And they realize like, oh, we don't have to do hundreds of pilots. We can do less pilots. And they they kind of figured out some stuff on the fly to both improve the industry and just change some bad habits they'd gotten into. How do you think TV is going to change whenever we get through whatever nightmare we're in now? Where it's like, all right, there's a finish line. We all feel safer. But now we also have all this experience of like, Oh shit, you actually can do, you know, for what you're doing, doing a TV show, obviously you can't film a movie, but when you have a writer's room and things like that, you don't necessarily have to be in the same room all the time. How's all that stuff going to change? I think the process of writing shows might change. Like you were saying, I think a lot of writer's rooms are weirdly continuing right now on Zoom. And I've talked to some other showrunners 
who are kind of weirdly liking it. Honestly, there's a social aspect to the writer's room, obviously. And in comedy, I think it really helps to be in this big, gigantic room. There's 15 of you in there if you're lucky enough to have a room that big. And it's really fun. And people are kind of bouncing off each other. It's, 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 it's kind of multiplicative, right? But I don't know, a drama writer's room, I've heard of people basically saying, hey, let's meet 11 to 1, break an hour for lunch, do 2 to 4, and we do 4 hours of meeting, and then we can go off and write on our own. And that makes sense in some ways. And to me, this is all part of the larger trend of everything getting smaller and leaner, you know, writer's rooms of fewer people and, and rooms where, quite frankly, you know, the showrunners can write most of the scripts with some input from some other people. So I think more people have been getting shows and rooms are getting smaller. That's just going to keep going. And on top of that, pilot season is going to keep being in jeopardy. You know, that writer's strike you were talking about already ruined a lot of pilot season and made everything leaner. But I think people are going to have to go straight to series. Like if you had an NBC show, like a buddy of mine had a show, a pilot for NBC. They couldn't shoot it, obviously. So now I think they have to make a decision and, and they're going to have to pick up some show straight to series. So I think that's just going to accelerate everything that's already happened. I mean, look, you've seen the, the landscape. It's, it's Netflix and, and, and all these on-demand services, streaming services really just dominating. And I think networks are still kind of figuring out how to do things. And, and it's, it's all changing, man. This is so crazy. It's really crazy. Yeah, it could lead to less pilots and a lot more bad reality TV and I game mean, shows. So are you caught up? Love is Blind, Circle, any of that reality stuff? I'm I'm about halfway through being caught up. The latest one, finally, Below Deck. Enough people badgered me about it. Oh, my God. And that's been, that's been on a lot in my house lately. Uh, yeah, it's weird. You just go on these dives, and now it's like, it's shame-free. Yeah, because it's I like mean, you, it's quarantine food, man. You got everybody yeah. knows you. Like, I don't. I know you're a Bachelor guy. Like, you know, I've seen a lot of seasons of The Bachelor. I watched Love Is Blind. I was like, this is the next iteration. It was. It made The Bachelor seem like from the Stone Age. It made The Bachelor seem right. like the dating game from the fifties. Love Is Blind was raw, man. That was really right. raw. You were gonna go well, to these people's houses, and it was like, you know, like if you went to Amber's house, it's like, wow. You go to all the houses on The Bachelor. Those people are really like well off and it's all the same house and every dad is wearing the same sweater over a button down. And you went to Amber's house. It's like, wow, that's a real person's house because it's a newish show. It felt like the real world in the 90s. It's just a new kind of show. Sex was definitely more of a character on the show too. In Bachelor, it's a lot of wink, wink. Something yeah. might have happened. A door is closing. It's, it's a horny show that's actually not that horny. Love is blind. They're just open about it. <laughs> no There's, rules. No rules. I no. mean, The Bachelor's on a Disney channel, right? It's owned by Disney. So it's like, they can't do that stuff. But you're right. You go back and watch it. It feels like the 1950s. You know, I, look, right. I love The Bachelor. I've seen a lot of it. But but yeah, Love is Blind came out of nowhere, man. <laughs> that thing came out it's, of nowhere. It's leading to the next level, which will be, you know, we had the bedroom cameras, which the real world introduced to us during the uh, iconic real world Chicago season where, but then they would cut out before anything actually happened. I'm wondering which one of these streaming services actually like really starts showing stuff. Like, how, <laughs> do, do we go NC-17? Do we go further? What are the lines? Hey, hey, are man, there lines but, anymore? I don't know. Uh, Bill, I heard Quibi's taking submissions, man. You want to <laughs> show over there, just text him. <laughs> just text Jeffrey Katzenberg. He'll give you that show. They're putting everything man. on, man. <laughs> they call everybody I know. <laughs> Quibi knows everybody. <laughs> This is this is a tough beat for Quibi the last few weeks. Although you could <laughs> argue or, that's actually good. Is it good or bad for Quibi? That's a question for you. Good or bad for Quibi? The crazy I, quarantine. 
opening up in the worst economy in you know decades, but on the flip side, everyone is bored and just wants to watch new content. So I don't, yeah, I don't know the I, answer. I mean, it seems like people are watching a lot of Netflix. I don't know that people are hankering to sign up for more services, though. So it's hard to know, man. It's hard to know. It seems like a rough beat for Quibi, maybe. Yeah, the the content. So po- podcasts are weirdly down a little bit, which makes sense if you actually think about how they're consumed. So many of them listening on commutes or when they're working out or when they're on like the train, things like that. If you're home, maybe you're a little less likely to listen to pods. But um, but I would assume Netflix, streaming, movies, binge shows, all that stuff has to be on the fly. And, and you look at even the Netflix main page, now they have that trending thing. And All American was second, which <laughs> by the way, my entire family watched within three days of when it was out. So... Those kind of shows seem like they're the at the best advantage. Those I kind think, of you could turn your brain off a little bit, but not totally, and you're just in. Yeah, I mean, and we obviously the elephant in the room, or should we say the tiger in the room? Tiger King, really? Just <laughs> I'm I'm telling oh people, God. Tiger Tail is a sequel to Tiger King, just to confuse people and get them to watch it. But it's you know it, it's a testament to just how many people have Netflix. I think internet use and Netflix watching indisputably has gone up. Obviously. They don't give me any numbers. They've never given me any numbers for anything. But uh, um, it, it's all people are doing, man. It's all people are doing. What else can you do? You know, it's, it, it, that's it. So, I think Tiger King's a win for you for I, for I, the I, success I, of your movie because it just just having agree. Tiger people searching for Tiger and <laughs> yeah. your movie comes up. They're like, what's that? I'm so I'm gonna slowly start the rumor that Joe Exotic appears in minute 45 of Tiger Tail. It's a backdoor sequel. Like you think it's about Taiwanese American immigrants, and then in minute 45, a guy comes in and, and like is riding a tiger. <laughs> like into it. <laughs> well, maybe they can. I mean, honestly, the content of those two things could not be more different. No, but maybe in the poster, maybe it's just Joe Joe Exotic shadows in the background. Yeah, you know, I, I, the I, characters. You're like, oh, I, what's he doing there? I agree with you. It's a win. It's weirdly a win that something with the word tiger in it is the talk of Netflix. Like the craziest, there's so many subplots. We shouldn't get off a Tiger King tangent, but it's crazy no, like, when, let's Sha- do it. when Shaq shows up. It's like, oh, Shaq is in right. this. Like there's so many, there's so many left turns in it. They, they almost, they almost had enough to make a whole second season. You know, sometimes they have these like, you know, some of these streaming shows, it's, not enough story for a whole season or not enough story for a series. It's like Tiger King. It's like they could have made 10 movies out of this. It's just way, it's too much stuff. It's overwhelming. And then you feel like kind of uneasy after all of it. You're just like, oh, I don't know about humanity. This is, this well, the, the weird thing is that there's no heroes. There's, there's not no, that one person who's like, who's the good guy? It's like, no, there's not. There's actually no good guy. <laughs> there's no good. I made that exact same comment to my friend and I was just like, you know, there's often the cliche network note if you make a TV show is like, you know, who are we rooting for? Like, let's make this character more likable, more likable, more likable. And it's like, show me one likable <laughs> real person in Tiger King and you can't. And you know what? It was a phenomenon. They're just, it's just too interesting, right? It's just too interesting and too crazy and too much, too much mayhem going on. So, um, yeah. Well, you know I, what I noticed? A, a reader sent this to me or a listener. Joe Exotic, when he ran for what did he run for governor of Oklahoma? He got 19% 19%. of the vote. 19%. 19%. Like that's I, I, for all your Oklahoman listeners, you got to explain that one. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to malign your state, but that seems pretty insane. 
Well, that I'm sorry, I can't remember the reader off the top of my head or the listener, but he was saying how isn't shouldn't this be Kevin Durant's number one defense of why he went to Golden State? That. I was just <laughs> gonna say that Kevin Durant should tweet today. Nineteen percent of people voted for Joe Exotic for governor. Now I had to I go. Went, you know, I moved to California. <laughs> <laughs> Between a that, by, a state, by the way, who elected Arnold Schwarzenegger. Let's not forget that. But, yeah, true. But, compared to compared to Joe Exotic, Arnold Schwarzenegger is a. Uh, Abraham Lincoln. So <laughs> right. On. Katie could be like Joe Exotic, reason one, reason two. I mean, have you seen Russell Westbrook play basketball? Not fun. Yeah. <laughs> Not fun to be his teammate. Well, I Those mean, are my about, two reasons. What about this Russell Renaissance, though? I had written him off. I was like, Russell's done. He's done. Like, it's just you're watching him just but this weird five out offense is Tranny Capella is like, I don't know, man. Westbrook, he he's his numbers were crazy. His numbers are crazy last month. He was one of the, uh, I mean, there's millions of losers with the coronavirus, but from an NBA standpoint, just the season getting canceled, it was right, right there in this weird Westbrook renaissance where people were like, is this guy going to be a, like a third team all NBA player again? It, it was they, peak like, Westbrook. Yeah, it was peak it Westbrook. It really felt like he was, was back. Right back to it. And it's like, oh, hey, don't shoot any threes. Just drive the rim and, and dunk every time. And it's like, oh, wow, it works if you don't, if you have four shooters around you, which he never had. He never had that before. And by the way, like speaking of losers, like I got to say, I know you're a Celtic fan. I'm a Laker fan. We're both losers because those were two really fun seasons. Those are really fun seasons. Your team was overperforming. And frankly, I think my team was overperforming. Like I, no one could have seen LeBron doing this in year 17. And, and I I didn't have them penciled in for 60 wins. I had them penciled in for 50. I think that's what the Vegas over under was 50 and a half or something. And, it was and, definitely, they were overachieving from a health standpoint. I did not yeah. expect him to carry the burden that he was carrying. Um, mm-hmm. I thought, I, Russell and I did a podcast on the Sunday before everything fell apart. So basically three days before the Rudy Gobert game, which I think we can now call the Gobert game or Gobert day or whatever day that March, was. It's, yeah, March 11, 311 or whatever yeah, that day was. The craziest day in, 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 in American history. The Donald Trump Go, press conference, Gobert test positive, Tom Hanks positive. Tom Hanks. All in one day, the NBA canceled. <laughs> like, the, the referee of the late night ESPN game, all of a sudden he had ref the Rudy Gobert game from a couple <laughs> games ago. Now all of a sudden the players aren't, I mean, that whole day. Yes. It's the so, craziest 30 minutes. Like it all happened in like 30 minutes. Right. So when we we did a pod that Sunday night before we knew any of this was coming and and people thought I like the people who know I hate the Lakers anytime I compliment them they're suspicious it's like I'm <laughs> handing them a package of a poison sandwich I'm like here I made you this sandwich and they're just looking at it wondering what's wrong with it but I I genuinely believe the Lakers are going to win the title um I just felt like when it came down to it in a playoff game, when things slow down, it gets more physical. Fouls are so important. Referee biases, all the stuff that comes in, like they were just the hardest team to play. And if they could have stayed healthy, I really thought they would have won the title. They legitimately had a shot. I think I listened to that pod and where I sort of agreed with you guys was, look, in the playoffs, it's LeBron and it's AD and they're so physically imposing. And I know, look, AD doesn't have the track record in the playoffs, but if you look at that series against the Warriors and, you know, he's played in the playoffs a little bit and he was a monster and he's a monster in a way that doesn't come and go like three-point shooting can and LeBron's obviously a monster in in that same way and they're just so physically dominating. Obviously, look, it's a three-team race between Milwaukee, the Clippers, the Lakers. I think a Lakers-Clippers series is probably a toss-up. That team is terrifying in the playoffs if they're healthy, right? And Milwaukee, 
Milwaukee's obviously, but for some reason, I agree with you. If it's Lakers, Milwaukee, for instance, I just still don't buy Milwaukee's supporting cast. It's still Chris Middleton and Eric Bledsoe at the end of the day. You know, Giannis right. is great, but, and Giannis, by the way, still doesn't have the track record that Kawhi or LeBron does. So, so you're looking at Giannis. Yes, he's been the most valuable player in the, in the regular season, but in the playoffs, He's still got to show you something. You know, he's still got to show it to you. He got stopped last year. He got, he got contained by Kawhi. I mean, you really could add the best, one of the best months of your life where you had yeah. your movies coming out. <laughs> Movie come, don't remind the me. The playoffs starting like three days later. <laughs> yeah, we, we, so we lost out on the movie premiere and, and look, there are greater tragedies in the world. But, you know, you know the movie's very personal. It's about my family. It would have been nice to, you know, it's about my dad's story, have my dad at the premiere and my mom and my sister and, and have them all together. We had a theatrical release as well that you know, every movie theater is closed now. Um, look, there are much, much worse things happen. But yeah, you know, it's the, 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 the silver lining is, look, it's on Netflix. It's not one of these movies. Look, I have friends who have movies who were theatrical and they just got pushed. You know, the Fast, yeah. Fast and Furious movie, you know, Justin Lin's movie got pushed a year. It got pushed a year. We were joking. I'm on a text thread with some, some friends. It's a, it's like a movie theme text thread. So right now it's called Gemini Man. <laughs> it's been it's it's a dated title right now. But but we were saying there are no summer blockbusters this year. They're all gonna be moved. It's right. a year without blockbusters. How crazy is that? It's just it's just it's only gonna be prestige films in, 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 well, in the holiday season. And then the other thing was it was really shaping up for as you know, the year of the Asians with the Parasite Oscar thing. We we were talking about that at dinner. It was it was all coming up Asian in 2020. <laughs> Let me ride that wave, man. No, seriously, I, I felt it because, you know, I tweeted the trailer out for Tiger Tail on Thursday and uh, it, it got a level of traction that I, it just blew me away. I mean, the response to it, and, and it's a movie, look, there's no big stars in it. It, it's, it stars Tai Ma, who's the dad in Mulan, which obviously got pushed as well. And he's the dad in The Farewell. But it's a trailer that's in Taiwanese, Mandarin, and English. And it, you know, my tweet alone, the trailer's gotten a million views or whatever. And like, I do think that people were primed to see Asian stuff because there's been a little bit of a rise. Like people watched Parasite. Parasite was great. It helped everybody because now people are willing to overcome the one inch barrier of subtitles and watch a great movie. So yeah, I, I do think that, um, look, this movie couldn't have come out five. It just wouldn't have been made five years ago. I started writing it four years ago. And at that, at that point, there was no Crazy Rich Asians. There was no Farewell. There was no Parasite. It was essentially the act of a madman to write a movie with only Asian people in it, which is what I did. And now it's like, yeah, yeah it's another Asian movie. It's like, great. It's like, well, I'm, I'm happy for that. I'm happy that it's no longer like, what is this? I'm like, I got to read well, subtitles. It's really exciting. Don't you think it's weird and bizarre that it takes like Parasite to succeed for Hollywood to go? Oh, maybe, maybe we should have some stuff with some Asians. What do you guys think? <laughs> yeah, like, no, and, by, and by the way, if you're Netflix, which is super global, you know, I don't know if you've looked at the numbers, but most of the world is Asian. <laughs> it's like right. it's like China alone has more people than like all of Europe. I know Netflix isn't in China, but but you know, same applies to all of those Asian nations. There's so many Asian people in the world. We don't know it because we live in America, and I never saw any Asian people until I was an adult in America. But yeah. You know, we're out there and 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 even the Asian American community is really get getting behind movies and, and they've been really supportive of this movie. So it's it's the beginning. I think look, Hollywood will go wherever money is, but it, you know Well it so reminds me of Black Panther, right? Like Black Panther, that whole thing, and they're like, Hey, what's this? 
<laughs> can you imagine a, a black superhero and it's not Whoa. extremely pandering or racist uh, right the same, and the same thing's gonna happen for asian people but right now there's still a there's still a newness there's like a frisson of seeing an asian face on screen and you know there's a scene in the movie between two asian american women and they're talking together and someone was saying i've just never even seen that one is really shy and one's really loud and crazy and there's just different personalities it's so rare we're used to seeing one in a movie or or, or none frankly so I watched this movie with my wife last night, thanks to my Netflix screener account, which I actually got to work, which is really the hardest thing to unlock uh, on anything. <laughs> this is a really serious movie and you're a comedy guy. Yeah. I, I, again, another example of my insanity. I, I, I went to, I was cutting the trailer with my trailer editor and he said, we were almost done cutting the trailer. I was really happy with it. I, you know, he, I've worked with him on Master of None and, and, and Forever and all of these other projects. And he said, wow, you really, you really bit off a big one with this. It's, it's, you know, in another language, a language you don't really speak. It's in another country with actors you've never worked with before. It's period. So, you, you know, it's the 60s, 70s, and it's, a shot on film. It's on 16 millimeter film. And it's a drama, which you've never done. Like you really, you really, you're basically insane to do this. I was like, man, I never thought of it that way. If I <laughs> thought of that going, I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> it's too hard. Right. But, but, but no, it just seemed really natural. And I think, you know, when people ask me about why did you decide to do it? I just feel like I'm genre agnostic. It, it, you know, if you look back at the, some of the stuff I've done, I've worked on a late night show, an animated show, a mockumentary, uh, a, a comedy with some social observational qualities and a supernatural uh, show and, and, and an anthology show. And, and this being a drama, it's more about just what's the best story to tell. And in this case, the more I thought about it, the more I thought about my father's story in particular, this was the way to do it. And it also was a way to pay homage to some of those great Asian films in the past, Wong Kar Wai films and Ho Xiao Shen and, and, and Edward Yang. And that was also a huge influence uh, in making the movie. So, I, w I mean, I wasn't surprised you did this because I've gotten to know you, but also Master of None, it's, that's, that's not like a laugh track, you know, jokes getting shot out of a cannon type of show. Like that had some serious elements to it. So this did seem like somewhat of a natural extension. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Master Nun ain't 30 Rock and ain't Family Guy. You know, it ain't a joke-based show. It's it's really, uh, we try to make that a thoughtful show. And on top of that, we we watched a lot of movies that inspired that. And, and, and you know, the way I used to put it is, Aziz and I didn't go to film school. Our film school was making that show and watching great movies and trying to learn from them. And one thing I've realized, this is kind of a subconscious thing, but it was trying to... Um, take the techniques from the greatest movies ever made. Whether you're talking about, I know this is going to sound pretentious, but really, if you're talking about Bergman and Ozu and Kubrick and Fellini and all of these amazing directors, you take these techniques and apply them to really modern themes and concerns and characters that have never been placed in that context before. So when you watch a, a Bergman movie, you know, it's always the same kind of person. It's, it's, it's unhappy Swedish people or whatever. But if you take that concern and you apply it to an Asian American immigrant who is coming to the Bronx, you know, I've never seen that technique being applied to that story and that world and that character. Frankly, I've never seen a guy, a young guy moving to the Bronx in the 70s who's from Taiwan and doesn't speak the language and is walking the streets and is surrounded by white, black, and brown faces in America and thinking about how alienating that is and how 
totally foreign that world was to my dad, you know, that was very inspiring to me. And I try to use, you know, these, these sort of techniques and, and stylistic uh, sort of inspirations from the greatest movies I've ever seen. Yeah, but you know what? That's smart because most people haven't seen any of those movies. Because you know who exactly. Else, you know who else does this is Bill Hader is like the biggest film nerd of all time, and they're doing Barry, and they're borrowing from all these fucking weird nineteen forties, fifties movies that nobody's ever heard of. And you know it works. You know, if I if I yeah. steal stuff from EE, if I steal stuff from from uh, City of Sadness, this is, these are movies that anyone has seen. I mean, these are, right. I mean, some people, if you're, you know, if you're a film buff, you, you've seen them, and you know, if you go to Cannes every year, you might have seen them. But but uh, yeah, and it, it, but and, and you it's apply not a big that. community. Exactly, exactly. It's not a Tiger King level, Love Is Blind level community. Uh, people are not firing up uh, City of Sadness on a Saturday night to fill their days. It's a if very long movie, but if you stole from Fast and Furious Seven, people would be like, "Hey, man, what the fuck?" <laughs> yeah, be like, "I saw that at Hobson Shaw two days ago." <laughs> <laughs> he ripped that off, man. He ripped that off. <laughs> um, so, w- what was your family's reaction to this movie? Because it's so personal. I'll and it's really moving, they, too. I'll, I'll tell you when they see it. <laughs> so, oh. so It's pretty funny that Simmons has seen the movie before my dad has. But uh, what we're going to do is, is, is uh, have a screening at Netflix. You know, we're going to have a family screening and, 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 uh, and have them all see it before the, the premiere so that they became accustomed to it. Um, but obviously, that became impossible when every building shut down. So... Um, we're getting them links. I just asked today actually to get them links to, to see it, you know, very, fairly soon. Um, but I will say, um, I was most kind of nervous about my dad because it's a lot of it. It's about him. And I want to stress again, it's really, really fictionalized and inspiration yeah. inspired by not, not, not based on specifically. Um, but, uh, I had written the script and, and it was, uh, you know, I had that for a while and I was in New York at the time and my dad would sometimes come over to my place and, you know, he would let in the exterminator occasionally if, if like the Orkin guy wanted to come over. So he emailed me and said, Hey, uh, Orkin wants to come by today. I'm going to check on the house. I was like, Oh, thank you very much. And later he emailed me and said, so I let the exterminator in all good. Uh, also, I saw your script on the coffee table. So I just read it. <laughs> I was like, Oh, great. That's not exactly the way oh, wow. I planned you to get that story. And uh, he said he loved it and he was really moved. And, um, he had like one historical nitpick about like the opening sequence, but other than that, he he loved it. And and uh, I, I I remember where I was. I I was I was walking on the street. I then I just shot baskets at the park, and I was walking back to my apartment. But I remember getting that email because about how 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 meaningful that was, and and how much you know how much the movie I'd made for my family, and and stressed to them that this is a love letter to them, and I hope you're not offended by any of the portrayals in it because it's not a literal representation of any of you, but it's really about my appreciation for the sacrifices you guys made for, for me and my sister. Are you worried at all about some of the stuff that's building now in America with, with some of the stuff we're reading? Uh, it ain't great. <laughs> it's not my ideal situation. I think it's, I think, you know, when I tweeted the trailer and I, I kind of mentioned this, it's, you know, I think I said it's an unprecedented time for Asian Americans. What I probably should have said was, it's sadly not unprecedented because obviously there's been much worse races in the past. I mean, you want to talk about Japanese internment, of course, yeah. there's been worse periods. But what was really disillusioning to me and uh, is just that I thought, maybe this was naive of me, but I thought we'd, we were past some of this, frankly. You know, I thought we were past some of this. And it's 2020, you know, we, we, Parasite just won. You know, <laughs> it's like, are we past right. some of this? And are we, 
aren't we sort of, but of course that's naive, right? It's, of course that's naive and, and racism is, 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 is alive everywhere, but not just America, but, but you just get disappointed. You, you think that that stuff's in the past and you think that people aren't harboring these resentments, but when things get scary and when people are tense and when times are difficult, uh, you know, sometimes you see that ugliness lash out and it's, it's really, it's really bad. You know, obviously the, the, you know, the, the biggest issue right now is everyone's health and that's number one, the number one concern. But hey, man, it's not cool to, to, to yell at Asian people, to spit at Asian people, to, to beat up Asian people. Like that, that's, of course, that doesn't even need to be said. That is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Um, you know, when stuff like this happens, when things really kind of unravel, like what's happened over the last three weeks, it seems like some people revert to like the worst possible instincts, the dumbest possible behavior. <laughs> it it just becomes extremes in every sense, right? The people that are upset about certain behavior who are most likely to go on Twitter and lose their minds, they're, they're on steroids. And the people that are really stupid who are just like, ah, I'm still going on spring break. What do I care? <laughs> and like they're going to do their dumb stuff. And it's just like everything goes on steroids. It's unbelievable. Yeah, so even the racists are like, cool, we get to be more racist. Yeah, everyone's worst. And I think in some cases, best tendencies are amplified, right? You know, it's like True. people want to go out and say F you. But, you know, I have friends in New York, you know, my buddies at, at these two Taiwanese restaurants, uh, 886 and Whole Foods, you know, their businesses are in trouble. And you know what they're doing is they're making food, they're making bento boxes and delivering them to hospital workers. And it's like, how can you be that good a person? <laughs> like, I, it's, it's so, it's so crazy. You know, you see, you see people helping and, and that stuff is, is, is what, what, you know, I try to focus on, but it, it, it it's, it's really disappointing. And, and I hope it's a blip, you know, I, I hope it's a blip and I, I hope education helps. And I hope, honestly, culture helps, you know, the more people see Asian Americans as human beings, I know how basic that sounds, but not inscrutable, not foreign, not alien, not someone from a different world from you. The more that I think racism will subside, I hope. Well, maybe this will lead to David Chang, um, bringing the walking tall gimmick back where he's the walking tall guy <laughs> and he's just going out settling injustices with chef tools. Yeah. I can see him doing it. <laughs> he's got a, yeah, he's got a cutting board. He's got a, he's got a, a rolling pin and he's got Hugo strapped to his back and uh, he's just laying waste to everyone. I wouldn't want to get in a rumble with him, man. He's like two bills. He's, he's, he's a tank. He's a Especially tank. Especially if he's way. angry. Yeah. By the way, Hugo's going to be a hundred pounds in like two days. You seen that? Oh, kid? I know. He, I know. He's massive. He's a he's a tank too, man. Yeah, the WWE is already scouting Chang's son. <laughs> we we need uh we need vigilante movies back just in general. You I'll know, make we, one, all, man. The, all this stuff comes in phases where like all of a sudden there's a horror movie and people are like, oh, horror movies. There's a horror movie run. It's like horror movies never went away. Um, you see it with like game shows or reality, certain reality TV things and the, the gimmicks will just come back. And I always really like those vigilante movies. Here's an idea for you. I actually had an idea for a coronavirus movie. This was months ago. This was when the oh, coronavirus movie- Pre-virus. Well, the, the, well, the coronavirus wasn't that big a deal. That's when I started yeah. writing this movie. It was just, I mean, it's just an idea, but it was essentially this, you know, outbreak starts in America and, or starts in China, comes to America and there's, Asian American racism. And ironically, one of the leading researchers who's 
finding a cure for Corona happens to be Asian American. And so it centers around her and let's combine these ideas. Let's have a super racist society in that movie, the end of the world. And she becomes a vigilante and she travels around killing racists and curing the disease at the same time. I think that's a sale, man. I think we I like get in a it. Zoom meeting, we sell that. <laughs> so we'll get Scarlett Johansson. We'll play. Oh, no, no, wait. Yeah. That's, we can't. <laughs> She's booked, man. She's doing Parasite too. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what, you said you had five things going on. What are, can you talk about the other four things or? Uh, yeah, I can I mean, talk I, about- I might know what some of them are, are but I, just for the people out there yeah i mean right now look right now it's it's uh so we had a couple shows that we're going to shoot very soon one of which was uh little america season two which i do with yep. uh lee eisenberg and kumail Nanjiani and emily gordon um and that one i can talk about because that show has come out already uh there's another show i can't talk about yet and there's two shows i can't talk about yet and press for this movie and uh, another one in development it's all stuff i, I unfortunately it's, this is bad podcasting but um, is all has not been announced yet. So, you know, how what about goes. your five hour documentary about the Mookie Betts trade? When, oh my God. Is that 2021 I, I gotta, or no? I got to talk to you about that. What, what, what should we call that? Shortchanged or like uh, <laughs> losing bets or what, what do we want to call it? <laughs> it's, it's, how do you feel, man? How do you feel? Brady and Betts. Listen, I didn't want to brother in Brady and Betts in, in, a, in a two month span. What was the, what was the span? Brady, I was fine with. We had him 20 years. The bets thing was about as mad as I've been at this point in my life about sports, about anything, just because I thought he was going to be in my life for 20 years. But now you look at it and the virus comes in and I don't think there's going to be a baseball season. Like, I really don't. I think baseball is going to get canceled. I don't see any scenario where even you throw like a mini spring training in. I don't think life is even remotely normal till July 1st at, at best case scenario. So then they would have to still do the spring training now or into like the tail end of July. I think it gets canceled. So the irony of this just horrific Mookie Betts trade they made is he might not play a game for the Dodgers. He just becomes a free agent <laughs> what if at he, the end what of if, the year. What if he skips the season and there's enough pressure, by the way, no pressure on you making this movement happen, but there's enough pressure from Red Sox fans and Red Sox ownership recently signs him. It's possible, right? They bring it's him back possible? and they get all the guys in the trade and then it retroactively <laughs> becomes like the best trade in Red Sox history. It's possible. It's, it's all, don't play. you just have to put pressure on John Henry? I mean, what is he spending that money on? Like, just have I, 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 I fully I, I don't know. All I know is all the Dodger fans I know were super excited and all the Red Sox fans I know were super bummed. I don't know the, you know, the ins and outs. I don't know all the prospects in that deal, but but it just seemed to me you're a rich franchise. You're doing well. He's a top five player in the world. You can have him for his prime. Just do it. Pull the trigger. I, I it, it seems like a no brainer to me. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, it, it, it's it's a bummer. You don't think they'll ever play like empty empty stadiums or anything like that? I think I like. Do you have a do you have a plan for the NBA? Because I know you've probably. I'm coming up with solutions for the how the NBA could come back. I'm sure you are as well. Like what? Baseball seems weirder to play in front of empty stadiums. Basketball, I've almost come to terms with if it comes back, and I hope it does, that it plays, they play, you know, I'm watching Cleveland play Charlotte in an empty high school gym in July, hopefully. (laughs) I don't know. I think at this point, people will watch it. Like, we're taping this on, what day is today? Wednesday? Uh, Tuesday. Tuesday, March Yeah, we're taping this on Tuesday. They announced this NBA 2K tournament. I saw that. With 12 players, and KD was a one seed. And I'm looking (laughs) at it like... I'm looking at the rankings. I'm like, oh, 
And then I'm like, when is this Friday night? Like, I 100% watch this. Bill, I texted like, that link to for 10 content. friends. I texted yeah. it to 10 because I was like, ooh, KD's playing Derek Jones Jr. in the first round. Like, what is this? This is, what are we doing? It, it's desperate. Well, also, by the like, way, what about, what about the seeding of that? Why are they seeding them by their rating? Is that just so KD can be the one seed? I don't know. That has no bearing on how good they are in the game. I'm sure that helped. My question, though, is can we gamble on this? Which I, I assume we can. <laughs> What if there was a point shaving scandal in the why 2K tournament? Should there be repercussions? Like I was just excited to think about scenarios that had nothing to do with just being depressed about all the shit that's going on. So if you ask me, will that will I be ready to watch NBA games in empty arenas in July? My answer is I was excited about this random 2K tournament that I don't even know what the stakes are. I'm like, what is it? Can I, I watch it? Yeah, I, I'll I'll watch it and like I yeah the betting implications are like well is it are Demarcus Cousins' hands too big like can he not hold the controller because he's got these massive is Trey Young True. good because he sees the court better like, I kinda, but here's the I thing I want to know the dirty secret and you've gotten to know a couple famous people over the years the dirty secret with truly famous people is they can't go anywhere. And they're doing all the same shit we're doing now during the quarantine because it's if you're Kevin Durant, you're just like in your hotel suite or you're in your fancy condo in some building. It's not like you're you're going, hey, I'm just going to power walk the streets of New York before this Nets game. Like you're not going anywhere. So he's playing 2K against all these dudes anyway. Now we're just going to be filming it. <laughs> he's just going to monetize he does. it. It's just, yeah. a, you know what it is? It's just a huge branding opportunity for the boardroom. It's just the boardroom. Oh, yeah. Boardroom's <laughs> a big winner on this, especially if KD wins it. I think after this is done, the boardroom is going to buy Disney. It's going to be so big. <laughs> <laughs> now it sounds like I'm slamming the boardroom, but I, you know, I, I'm not. But <laughs> No, it's the, you have the combo of, uh, that should have been the finals. This board, there should have been a boardroom conference and an uninterrupted conference. Oh, man. Boardroom and uninterrupted. And then it's like, th there can only be one. Whatever Steph's company is named. Everyone has a production company, so whatever their company's named. <laughs> oh, I know. Has anybody, any athletes ever come to you to try to get you to write a show with like one of their famous, you don't have to say who the athlete is, but has that happened? Yeah, yeah. Not only that, but like, you know, I've had, I've had like general meetings with athletes, which I love because, you know, I love sports. You know, I mean, you know, Bill and I have known yeah. each other for a while. We've talked sports a long time before we talked movies or anything else. And, um, it's very exciting for me. It, it's there was very there was one athlete, uh, uh, very very famous guy who was we had a general meeting and 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 he was like you know he loves comedy and he was like you know what was really exciting about this whole thing is like playing basketball. This is like I gotta have a meeting with Mike Schur. I was like Mike Schur, you mean the showrunner wow. of Parks and Rec? Like my friend Mike? It's like yeah, you can have a meeting with Mike. I love Mike. He's a nice guy, but but it's so funny to have this like very famous person be like I got to meet Mike. I was like yeah, you can meet Mike. He's, he's a cool guy. He's around. He's a great guy. But well, that's um, like it, the guys who do billions in succession. Those guys in <laughs> NBA circles and like. CEO circles. They're like rock stars. Everyone yeah, wants well, a cameo on those shows. Yeah. I mean, it's secret. It's like secret behind billions and entourage and all those shows. It's like, yeah, you'll get, you know, people want to be on those shows. You know, people, that's the other thing you were saying. Like, here's the other secret about really famous people. They watch TV. You know, it's like they just watch things. Like, they, we've had they watch people, everything. Yeah. We had, we, I remember, I'll never forget. We were at a party one time. Me and Z's were just at this party and Drake was talking to us. And Drake said he was a big fan of Master None. And 
He's like, I've watched it all the way through twice. I was like, I haven't even done that in one sitting. That's insane. <laughs> That's totally crazy. But it's like they watch these shows because you know they, they have a lot of time on their private planes or in their mansions or whatever. And I think they want to be on them because it's like things that they can talk about with their friends. Um, but yeah, any hey, look, any NBA players want to do TV or anything, hit me up. I'm always thinking of ideas. I love the NBA and I'm obsessed with every player basically i know i know i know i know of you probably if you play in the nba <laughs> drake drake was like i'm thinking season 3 it's master we get rid of the of none but <laughs> yeah, i'm the master and I'm it's just master. about how great i am i'm it's good at everything it's never explained. Uh, Drake plays uh, the same character, but it's never explained. <laughs> he has Indian parents. <laughs> it's all the same. It's about him, you know, like going to, like, you know, uh, going to Diwali or something. <laughs> but it's Drake. Did you understand the power of Netflix? Not to make this sound like a Netflix infomercial, but you do Master None with them pretty early in the whole Netflix TV show aspect of this whole thing. Like they had only been really, really. How how many? months was that after house of cards like 18 months max right yeah, that was so or here's two the, here's, years here's the actual story behind that they were so early so what people don't know is when we pitched master of none netflix only had three shows so we pitched it a year over a year before it, it came out because we ended up doing one more season of parks and recreation before we even started working on master of none so when we yeah. sold the show they had three shows house of cards orange is the new black and Lilyhammer, the show about a gangster in Norway. <laughs> and so we didn't know. I don't even remember that. It was uh, the dude from The Sopranos. It was, uh, it, it was like, a, you know, it was like a show that they had bought from Norway or something. But oh. um, it, it, so basically, it was a huge leap of faith for us to go with Netflix. And, and the reason we went with them is because they really believed in us. They believed in the idea. They believed in, you know, me as a showrunner and Aziz as a star. And, 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 um, we went straight to series, right? So we got to make the show. We knew we would get to make a season of the show. But Netflix then was nothing like it is now. You know, it, it's just, it, it, it was much smaller. They moved offices. They, they, it, just, it was just a smaller operation. Remember when it was a DVD company? I mean, it wasn't that long ago. You know, it just wasn't that long ago. We talk about, you know, Master None was, that was five years ago. That's not that's not that long ago, but it feels like an eternity. So Netflix, I don't think it was preordained to succeed. You know, it it just it, at the time, you know, choosing between Netflix or HBO or FX or any of these places, we got lucky because I honestly think that was the right venue for it. You know, the same way that I feel again because of these weird circumstances, it's like April tenth. When Tiger Tail comes out, it's like people are at home. They're going to watch it. It's just people are at home. And it's also this, all this weird Asian stuff is happening. It's like, it's weirdly, you get, you can't control timing. You know, you can't control timing of things. You can't control necessarily when things hit or don't hit. It, it, a lot of that is circumstance. A lot of that is the right time, right place. And Master None certainly felt that way. Plus, you're going to get the drive-by pack. Uh traffic of people looking for Joe Exotic for the first 20 minutes of your movie. <laughs> yeah, just like... Where the I'm fuck gonna, is Joe Exotic? I'm, I'm, I thought he was in here. Out. I'm going to stick it out. I know that a tiger's going to show up. I know someone's going someone's gonna to do meth. Someone's going to get killed. Someone's going to get fed to tigers. I know it's going to happen. It's in the name. This is the Asian sequel to Tiger King. Please. You should, <laughs> Spread you that should just information. CGI one shot of a zoo early on to throw people off. Just get it in there first minute. Say, oh, there's the zoo. Where, uh, uh, where is it? 
we should quickly shoot a post credits <laughs> that ties it in. It's like it's in the MCU. <laughs> Just have a post credits, and and it's my dad meeting Joe Exotic at the end. <laughs> um, can we before you go? Can we do the uh, the Asian celebrity power rankings right now with the where does where does the parasite director does he have the title right now? Does he have oh, the championship man. belt? I was Bong talking to Chang there. about this. Yeah. So is is Bong the championship belt holder right now? I think he's got he's like the cool guy holder, right? He's got the cool guy holder. I don't know, like, does I don't know if like regular people know who Bong Joon Ho is, do they? I hope they do. I mean, he won an Oscar, but but he well, doesn't speak say, English and he's a director. I think he's up there. I, I mean, he's my number one. I love him, but who who else right, is so in the let's mix? Say, who else is even in what, the mix, Bill? I don't even know. What was that who, party we went to in Koreatown that oh, night? Yeah. With <laughs> the, the all Asian birthday party. I, think I, was one, I was one of the only white guys there. But I, I, uh, I, that that was a really funny night. Just to give you the listeners some context, I think we had dinner. It was you, uh, Dave Chang, and and Dave Cho, probably right. Yeah. Was, so so it yeah, was the four of us and uh, Daniel Day Kim was having a party. So we went to Daniel Day Kim. It was amazing. Like his company's party. And it was in Koreatown, and yeah, Bill was the only white guy there. And it was like yeah, it was Asian Hollywood. It's like every but, Asian person is there. So if we had all the heavy hitters at that party, who who is like the Frank Sinatra of that party? Who has Man. the best table? I mean, I look, DDK's I think DDK's it might be Bong. He, I mean, he's been around for a long time, but Bong is very hot right now. Bong is very hot. You know, you got like you got and you gotta go through, you know, these past few years. Like, you know, you gotta you gotta put Aquafina up there. She's and she's gonna be she's gonna be really big too. She's already big, she'll be really big. And you got to put Constance and you got to put Henry Golding and Randall and Steve Ewan up there. Um, and and director-wise, you put Lulu and John Chu up there too. And Justin Lin, who we talked about. So yeah, those are the... I mean, I'm, I'm forgetting a millions of people, I'm sure. You and but, Chang uh, are in there. I'll say it for you. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks, man. I'm, I'm, I'm in the director cut. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely a top 10 Taiwanese-American <laughs> film director. <laughs> uh, 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 I'm trying to think what happens if Jeremy Lin walks in. Yeah, I think I think Jeremy's got to be up there, man. Jeremy's, I mean, he's still still exciting. It's just like, yeah, it's still exciting. He's tall. He's one of the taller Asian people. Not to be a stereotype about it, but he's tall. It's like he'll stand out. And uh, yeah, another Taiwanese American kid. So yeah, you know, uh, my wife and daughter love Crazy Rich Asians. So I, it's been on a few times at my house. That movie, if you just talk about comedy formulas. Because you mentioned Constance Wu, it just made me think about it. Like, kind of like unassailable premises of movies, and when you, especially rom coms, that can execute this. Like, my best friend's wedding is like this too, where it's just like, I can explain this movie in eight words, and you just go, <laughs> and, "Oh, I get and it." It goes global. It goes global. That one, that one's so good. Like, in a, imagine being in the room when somebody pitches that, and it's like, the family is incredibly rich. They don't like who the son chose as his fiance. That's the movie. Like, okay, what oh, happens? Give me the money. Uh, I think you've said this on the pod before, so I don't think it's a personal uh, 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 matter. But uh, is, do you think your daughter watching Crazy Rich Asians has affected her decision to date a half Asian guy? <laughs> <laughs> 
Henry Golding, the very, very handsome, a very handsome yeah. Asian guy. So, and you it's love this very boyfriend. I've heard you rave about him on the pod. So, great boyfriend. He's he's been a huge <laughs> asset to the family. And now that now they're quarantined, it's Corona, Romeo, and Juliet. Oh, it's a whole saga. Corona um, and Juliet, man. You, it, it, and thank the Asian American Film Ministry. Thank John Chu for for casting Henry Golding for for your your daughter's great boyfriend <laughs> <laughs> to live up to. I think you have I think you have an unassailable rom-com presence in you. Yeah, like, I would love to, man. I I've I've got sent a couple you scripts, figure scripts this recently. Out. And 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 uh the other thing that's nice about like I was saying about being genre agnostic is like I love a lot of different kinds of movies. Like I've seen every Marvel movie, I've seen I've I've seen every big action movie. I'd love to do one of those. I've seen every Star Wars, I'd love to do one of those. Uh and I I watched my best friend's wedding, which you mentioned. I watched that like two months ago. It holds up and it's like, it's a perfectly made movie and they're very difficult to do. They're very difficult. I respect that genre just as much as I respect any of these other genres because to do anything really, really well is difficult. And, and I have an interest in a lot of different types of movies, not just that know, was- Tiger, Tiger Tales, a serious movie. It's, it, it has art house influences, but that's not the only kind of movie I ever want to make. I mean, that was part of the struggle with Parks and Rec that first season, right? They knew they had this show they wanted to build around Polar, but it was a show that was really hard to explain. Okay, so what is this? And then all of a sudden in season two, they're like, oh, here's here's actually what this is. And it made sense. But it's funny how just trying to get to that eight to 10 words can be like the hardest leap with all this stuff. Yeah, you know, you know man. And it, 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 it's like sometimes you, you when you get that chance, when you get that second season, it can be an unbelievable blessing. You know, it's just like, wow, can you imagine if that show had gotten canceled after one season? Instead, it went 125 episodes and people love that show. You know, that show's brought a yeah. lot of joy to a lot of people. And, 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 and enabled Mike to do more shows, which is, you know, it, it's incredible. And that's, I, by the way, I learned a lot working on that show. I, I worked on all of those episodes. I was yeah. there for a long time. I learned a lot. And, and, and it's, it was incredible education. Another really fun, great experience. You know? What is, probably never happens, but have you thought, like, what is a Master of, master of None third season Oh man, you know, I, is that look, too hard to even like conceive of, or do you? Would you have to like just trap yourself in a bear cave with Aziz for a month and try to figure es- it out? Essentially, Aziz and I've said we'll do it if we have an idea that excites us enough. And we felt like, look, season two was a pretty big departure from season one. We want to do if we ever do another season, we want it to be as different, as challenging, as risky, as ambitious, and 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 do something that really excites us. We see them as, as little movies, right? You don't just do a movie for the sake of doing it. You do it because you, you're unbelievably driven and passionate about it. So we're still really good friends. We talk all the time. So you know, we'll see what happens. That's definitely not what was uh, driving Entourage during the last few seasons. <laughs> it wasn't the Capelli. Yeah, it wasn't the Capelli. They weren't. They weren't doing a Victoria De Sica homages in Entourage. <laughs> different, different kind of show, you know. Different kind of show. But they were, you know, they had like like a lot of jets and like you know, cool, cool celebrities and stuff. <laughs> I'll never forget that one episode that Brian Grazer was on <laughs> when when they're just walking on the street in Beverly Hills and they walk by him in a crosswalk and he's like, hey, wasn't that Brian Grazer? And they turn around and he kind of looks and it's like the most obvious planted Brian Grazer had asked to be in the show cameo that's ever <laughs> yeah. happened. It's like Brian Grazer calling Doug Ellen personally, just saying, put me in the show. <laughs> just, just put just me in the show. Five seconds. My son loves the show. 
<laughs> the other one that's classic and almost famous when Jan Wenner gets shoehorned into the uh, oh, Mona yeah. Lisa Mad Hatter scene when he's looking in calves for Penny Lane. And it's like, oh, there's Jan Wenner holding a newspaper. It's so clearly just <laughs> planted in. You got to work on those. You need more cameos in your, yeah, in just, your shows. Just totally. Blatant cameos. Yeah, just totally. Well, you know who it's going to be? It's going to be all these NBA players. It's going to be my next Asian American, all Asian American movie is going to be all, all Asian American, except for, yeah, yeah, except for Anthony Davis and uh, Contavious Caldwell Pope. Hey, it's Contavious Caldwell Pope. Well, let's get back to the sad Asian drama. <laughs> <laughs> is that Frank Vogel? Why is he the major D? Yeah, you got to work on that. Uh, all right. So Tiger Tail, April 10th. April I thought it was 10th. excellent. I was, Thank you I was, so much. I hate. I don't mean to sound condescending. I was really proud of you. I just, got, I just that, feel proud when people make good stuff that I know. So I was like, this is. I was just that's, proud. That's not condescending at all. I appreciate it. Honestly, I'm a tiny bit proud of myself because a very crazy thing to do, and and like you said, a total departure in some ways. But like you said. You know, if you like Master of None, you, you there's something for you in this for sure. If you like Little America, there's something f- for you in this, and 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 it's it's not just for Asian people. It's not just for immigrants or children of immigrants. It's about a father and daughter. It's about lost love. It's about passion. It's about regret, and it's about being honest with the people you love. And and it's really um, ultimately a universal story about a very specific set of characters. So I'm glad you liked it. It, 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 it I put everything I had into it. So. Um, I appreciate it, man. All right. Good luck. I hope to, I hope we have dinner at some point over the next 12 months again. I hope restaurants are still healthy and thriving again at some point in the let's next hope, year. Let's hope restaurants exist. I look forward to uh, having dinner and having you be the only white guy and then taking you to a uh, Randall Parks <laughs> party or something. <laughs> All right. Talk to you soon. All right. See you, Bill. Thanks. All right. Thanks to Joe Buck and Alan Yang. Thanks to Simply Safe. Protect your home with Simply Safe, the go-to guys for home security, masters of protection. They protect every door, window, and room with 24-7 professional monitoring. No contract, hidden fees, or fine print. Around the clock monitoring, just $15 a month. Three times less than the other guys, just $15 a month. Right now, my listeners get a free HD security camera when you visit simplysafe.com slash BS. Simply Safe for two eyes. Simplysafe.com slash BS. We put up a ton of podcasts for you this week, including uh, multiple redraftables. You can find all those on the Book of Basketball. Two rewatchables, Fast and Furious 7, and then Tommy Boys coming up later this week, plus two on this feed. Uh, My podcast output is going to be extensive. I'm not positive it will always be three podcasts on this feed, so just stay tuned. I'll update you here. Uh, or you can check out my Twitter feed to see what's going on. Uh, stay safe out there. Don't forget to give to whatever charity you love. I recommended uh, World Central Kitchen, WCK.org. FeedingAmerica.org is another good one. Uh, but there's a lot of great ones out there. And the most important thing is to try to help out the people who are helping us fight this virus in the hospitals, picking up patients. Um, the emergency room people, all that stuff, anything we can do for them, try to get them more equipment, all that stuff. Uh, try to do what you can to help out. Stay safe. Quarantine yourself if you can. Watch TV, listen to podcasts, watch all sporting events. And uh, we'll be back on this podcast on Sunday night with Priscilla. Until then. <laughs>